Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, February 26, 2021. I am John Pudhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine and the purveyor of merch, shirts, tote bags, all for you at merch.commentarymagazine.com. I have to say, the merch is flying off the shelves. Those crushing morosity t-shirts and sweatshirts, the Keep the Kennel Burning t-shirt, the Commentary logo t-shirt, and the Commentary tote bag. Uh, we may have to start ordering more limited time offer here because we are running out. So make your purchase today at merch.commentarymagazine.com. And if we continue to do as well as we're doing, we may add some new products for those of you. I don't think anybody's really received theirs yet, probably. But when you get it, if you like it, we may have more for you. So uh, buy some for you. Buy some for your friends. Buy some for your kids. It's fun. Merch.commentarymagazine.com. And with me, as always, associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. And Senior Writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. So the first military action of the Biden administration took place last night in response to the uh, Iranian-backed militias in uh, Iraq uh, striking at uh, American contractor targets, and we have retaliated with a strike against Iranian assets in Syria. Noah, what do you make of the choice of target? Um, well, initially, I didn't. I did, I, when it came across the wire, I thought they were striking back against positions in Iraq, which um, would be covered by at least two AUMFs. Um, that, that's, so the, a- that's the uh, authorization for the use of military force as as voted by Congress. Correct. Okay. There is no legal authority um, to execute strikes in Syria. That doesn't seem to be a problem. The last three consecutive administrations have done it. Um, it is legally disconcerting. And Congress, which is, you know, rending garments, the members of Congress are rending garments on the left over this, um, should probably introduce an AUMF or at least seek an AUMF and, and pursue uh, legal authority here. Nevertheless, um, degrading the capacity of these uh, militias to execute these kind of attacks on American positions, American contractors and their allies in the region is an absolute necessity. It's good to see the Biden administration pursue it. They were very reluctant to acknowledge that this even happened, much less who was responsible for it. These uh, Iran-backed militias operating in Iraq and Syria is very, it's still a pretty porous border and there's little definition between the two. Um, but there's a very little consistency in this administration. They don't seem to have a consistent idea of how to pursue the policies they're seeking. One minute they're trying to, they're making overtures toward Iran diplomatically, and they're sort of going to let this stuff slide. And then the next minute they're going after these militias duly, appropriately. But again, I mean, we talked about this the other day, the, the sort of this parallel track um, that where these, you know, a, a, in a, attacks on these positions from these Shiite-led militias while making overtures toward Iran and pretending the two things aren't connected. That's not a coherent foreign policy. It's certainly not a doctrine. Right. Well, I mean, okay, so let's be fair, right? The administration has been in place for 35 days, 36 days. Uh, They were, I mean, this would be the devil's advocate. They were uh, against your position. They were challenged by an Iranian action, and they have taken a 
response that could be deemed proportionate. It's not escalating. It is a response. Um, and uh, they chose to do so, I guess, probably because this was uh, an easy, safe target. Uh, uh, and they were uh, basically trying to hamper the effectiveness of these militias in Syria by destroying the infrastructure around them. Um, and so they they had a moment where they had to respond or not respond, and they chose to respond. And I, I feel like maybe we should give them a little credit for responding, since they seem to have every incentive not to, given their grand the grand structure of their idea that what they are now supposed to do is restore some kind of status quo ante between the United States and Iran that was in place before Donald Trump. Yeah, don't president. get don't get me wrong. This is a good move. This is a justified retaliatory response in an effort to remind Iran and its proxies that there are consequences for the, the provocations they engage in. But there needs to be a strategic approach to the region here, and we're not seeing anything close to a strategic approach. And just because they're a month in doesn't mean that they get a pass on this. This, this administration is staffed by a whole lot of people with a whole lot of governmental experience, most of which comes from the Obama administration. They don't get a pass for being new. They okay, well, hey, let me, let, me, let me ask you this. So uh, friends of ours, uh, uh, you know, on the, on the right side of the uh, political spectrum um, who are, you know, hawkish, uh, have responded to this with a certain degree of scorn. They only bombed a road. It's not serious. They did whatever they could do to make sure that nothing happened that would interfere with their larger grand design between, with some form of rapprochement between the U.S. and Iran. It's all city, silly. It's kabuki theater. Um, what do you make of that take? Um, yeah, I think that's, um, at this point, not fair. I'm, I'm with you, John, that the, the, we should give the administration credit uh, as of now. Um, uh, you know, a week ago, the, they were, the, the Biden administration was sort of, you know, putting out uh, stories to the Times about how they were not like the Trump administration and that they weren't going to, um, you know, be uh, as overtly aggressive against Iran uh, and here we are a week later and there's and there's a strike that is a, a, a proxy strike uh, on, on Iran. Um, look, I, I'm more concerned still about our our friends on the right or our, our one time friends on the right who um, who are not saying that this is um, uh, too weak, uh, a show of American force, but saying that it is um, uh, unnecessary entirely. And we are going back to. Uh, endless wars in the Middle East, and it's you know it's the, the business as usual uh, uh, bombing again. You know they're saying this in in a way that is um, identical down the line to the way uh, the left used to speak about um, uh, American military action when undertaken uh, by a Republican administration. Christine, uh, we have um, a lot of. Uh... Uh, yucking it up, uh, uh, deservedly, I think, uh, because people have, of course, gone back and looked at the statements made by Biden and Biden administration uh, officials back during the Trump administration in response to actions taken by by Trump, uh, particularly White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki saying, 
in 2017 in relation to a, a strike in, in, in the, that was executed, the strike that was executed in Syria to deal with the use of chemical weapons, that um, uh, this was very troubling because, of course, Syria is very bad, but it is a sovereign nation. And now, I guess, of course, at 1130 today, she's going to have to go out and defend the Syrian strike, having herself done one of these, you know, head-shaking, thumb-sucking, head-scratching, well, I don't really know if this is cricket things. And then of well, course, and not, not just Jen Psaki, but there are lots of statements on the record from Vice President Kamala Harris when she was a senator about the very same thing, which I think actually the press secretary should be asked about by the media. Like, has her view of this situation shifted now that she has access to greater intelligence and and because of the, the way the world has changed? I doubt that question is going to be asked. And if it is, I doubt Psaki will answer it. But it is an important question. I was struck actually with the with the the domestic policy uh, reaction to the strike being very similar in terms of how the Biden administration is trying to uh, play a lot of different angles in the same way that they're doing um, with the issue of immigration and the border. And I agree with Noah that there is a kind of overall sense of confusion if you're kind of a if you're kind of slightly hawkish, moderate, but otherwise a pretty moderate, you know, Republican. You look at this, you're like, this makes no sense because a week ago you were they were kind of cozying up to Iran and now they're striking them. What What is your policy? And I do think that a lot of this, a lot of the, at least the talk, not the action, is geared towards that progressive domestic wing of the Democratic Party that doesn't like this kind of thing, and but is still trying to give the administration a little bit of time to, to kind of solidify its policies in the same way that I think Abe's correct, that on the right, you have a similar uh, fracturing that's gone on with regards to how much military action overseas the United States should be engaged in. Um, I would suspect that if you're a savvy Democrat, you exploit that on the right and it, try to ignore the, the criticism you're going to get on your own side. But that's not sustainable for the Biden administration for more than a few months because um, the honeymoon period is, if he even had one, is coming to an end. Well, let me let me let me propose uh, again to uh, play devil's advocate or whatever, or sort of make some argument that tries to put the 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 Biden actions in uh I don't know in a in a favorable light something like that you could say that throughout the the late 20th century the United States had this bifurcated view of how it was to deal with adversaries in particular the Soviet Union which is that uh we confronted the Soviets uh misbehavior in various places with support for proxies, that's the Nixon doctrine, you know, supporting uh, freedom fighters, supporting uh, proxy groups fighting Soviet proxies in Africa and various other places. Um, But that didn't mean that we weren't negotiating with the Soviet Union over uh, arms treaties and uh, nuclear weapons and human rights and things like that. Now, there was a considered body of opinion, uh, particularly in the neoconservative camp, that those negotiations were always, always put us at a disadvantage and were always foolish uh, because we wanted we wanted the results more than they did, and there was always going to be an unequal balance there, uh, such that uh, the uh, the Salt II Treaty, which was eventually rejected by the Senate in 1979 effectively enshrined soviet nuclear warhead numerical superiority in pursuit of a deal uh because we wanted a deal so much and they don't you know they didn't need a deal or not a deal 
You can then make flip it around and say there were negotiations like at Helsinki over human rights that looked like big f- losses for the United States uh, in various ways because we had to sort of acknowledge Soviet dominion over Eastern Europe in order to get the uh, Helsinki deal through in the late 1970s. And yet, according to Soviet dissidents at the time, um, the Helsinki Accords uh, gave them enormous legal, uh, gave them new ways in which to contest and combat the Soviets' uh, illegitimate and monstrous behavior toward them inside Russia. So, But can I point out a difference between, I mean, I, I understand sort of, you know, going on two tracks uh, with with an adversary like that, but the difference one at least one difference between our conduct along those lines with the Soviet Union and how um, the Biden administration and the Obama administration approaches approached Iran uh, is that um, we were not trying to rehabilitate the image of the Soviets. We were not trying to convince the world. <laughs> that um, they were good and responsible actors and um, should be uh, f- sort of further enmeshed in the uh, uh, sphere of responsible states and whatnot. Uh, ver- very much the opposite, in fact, um, uh, which is uh, actually what we should be doing with Iran. Um, and, and we're doing the opposite. Yeah, to that to that point, I mean, aside from the fact that there's a qualitative distinction between this <clears throat> rogue outlaw state and a peer competitor, um, when Brzezinski, for example, would talk about human rights as an instrument. Yeah, of foreign, he was Jimmy, as a big Brzezinski was Jimmy Carter's national, national security, security advisor. advisor. Um, when he would talk about human rights as an instrument of American foreign policy, he would talk about it in um, hard power terms. Uh, it was a um, another weapon in the arsenal to anathematize the regime, to put pressure on it, in ways that were not um, military in nature, to force it to make expenditures that would otherwise not make, and to harm its international image. Um, so they talked about it, and I, I, you know, you can quibble with that whether they're generally serious or not, because there was some ideological um, pr- predilections on display there. But the way they talked about it was at least valuable insofar as they acknowledged that it was a tool to isolate and contain the Soviet Union, just like ICBMs or intermediate range weapons or deployments in Eastern Europe. I mean that, that's that's an interesting point, and we certainly weren't trying to rehabilitate or 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 uh, you know turn the Soviet Union into an ally. But Jimmy Carter did say we have to get over our inordinate fear of communism, and this idea was yes, we could treat the Soviet Union as though it wasn't a radical revolutionary state, but that it was a state that was uh, within the community of nations, and that it would adhere and hew to international agreements and international standards. This was always one of the many objections to the Iran deal uh, from people who objected was that we had absolutely no reason to believe that the Iranians would hew to the terms of the deal. They are a revolutionary state. They do not accept international norms. They do not accept, you know, Western contract or Western ideas of contract and all that. They have a different set of understandings. And therefore, you know, going through one of these processes of making a deal with them that would be, you know, 
enforceable largely by world opinion by little bits and pieces of things unless we unilaterally pulled out of it which is what we did uh was it was a fool's errand and that we were we were being we were a mark we were being taken advantage of but we were the ones taking advantage of ourselves like this this was all our doing not 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 iran's right so where we are now is we hit iran uh, and at the same time, they want to have have a track in which they can somehow get back to some semblance of the Iranian nuclear deal. And then, but of course, we also have this report from the International Atomic Energy Agency that Iran has now refined uranium to a level thirteen times uh, the level that we knew that they had done. So we, we, of course, pulled out of the deal unilaterally. They don't have to respect the terms of the deal if we uh, pull out of it, but. Um, but they are producing uranium at an incredibly fast clip, which either means this whole this whole exercise is ludicrous because they're not going to stop, or if you're them, I guess you think we better get back into this really fast and slam the brakes on what they're doing. But at the same time, Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State, and others have said we're not going to go back into the deal until they agree to abide by its terms before we start talking about the deal. Well, right. And there's also, I'm sorry, but there's a, there's a healthy level of skepticism and or cynicism among the American domestic population about any return to any discussion of these deals, because we do know, and this is something the left really hasn't ever come to terms with, honestly. We were, de- the public was deliberately misled by the Obama administration in order to get that deal in the first place. So any attempt to even go back to parts of that deal by the Biden administration better talk about the transparency of what's going on. And, and the, you know, I mean, Ben Rhodes made his career leaking, you know, fake information to credible new, news media, credulous news media. That can't happen again. I don't think people have the tolerance for that anymore, particularly in the wake of four years of Trump and listening to the media talk about how you cannot lie to the public. You cannot lie to the public. Well, we were lied to before. So he, he's got to find a way if he's going to get back to this deal to talk about it to a, his domestic political audience in a way that isn't going to spawn more cynicism. Is there a domestic political audience? I mean, the, here, here, here's where we get into this bizarre conundrum of what the American public wants or needs or thinks about or cares about. Do they care about this? I mean, certainly we cared about the Iran deal and that America cared about the Iran deal in 2015. There had been three years of run-up and we were only a few years out from the Iraq war and... Uh, if even if you can even say that uh and uh you know there we were only 14 years out from 911 and so there was still a lot of focus on this it's now 2021 we're coming up on the 20 year anniversary of 911 the 18 year anniversary of uh 20 year anniversary of going into Afghanistan 18 years of going into Iraq I just and and uh, there was fatigue and uh, Trump did the minimum and not much more did little bits of things and killed Soleimani and all of that. Does the American public care about any of this? I I, I see absolutely no evidence to suggest that the Amer- I mean I, I don't know where the evidence would come from, but I see absolutely no evidence to suggest the American public cares about foreign policy at all in any way, shape, or form, at all. I, I agree with the exception that they care to the extent that um, you can fall down on um, uh, Team Trump side or Team Anti-Trump side uh, still. 
you know, because especially you know, regarding something like uh, Iran, right? Uh, if you are if you are still on t- on Team Trump, you you don't want the deal, and there are other reasons not to want want a deal. Um, but if you are anti-Trump side, yeah, you'd you'd love to get that that deal back. It erases what what you know Trump accomplished there, or you know it erases Trump's erasure of Obama's policy. I mean that describes partisans, yeah. But I don't know if it describes average voters. It's a, as as a foreign policy voter, uh, it's a safe bet that Americans don't care about foreign policy only except insofar as there are body bags coming home. That's when that's when people perk up, and that's when people get really invested in in a in an issue that is related to foreign policy. But the public did care about the Iran deal. Um, well, yeah, they, but there, it, it was it was it was because but because it was a backstop against armed conflict. That was always in the in the air during these negotiations. By the way, not the Obama only, administration right. framed it. The Obama administration framed it as this or war. Right, but and that focuses the mind. Not only did the public care about the Iran deal, the public was opposed to the Iran deal. Sixty forty. I mean, this wasn't even a close call. Well, they didn't believe the Obama administration's framing. <laughs> right, but I mean. They were against it, and Obama then had to structure this treaty as something that was not a treaty uh, in order to get it passed through the Senate. Because, um, in fact, you know, it, was, it had this bizarre structure where you would have to have two-thirds of the Senate vote. I can't even remember how, how it, was all, it was all flipped around backward. Like, the Senate could reject the deal by two-thirds, but otherwise he would just sign it because it wasn't really a treaty. And of course, as Tom Cotton said, and then everybody came down on his head because it was so evil. How dare he negotiate? It's the violation of the Logan Act or something like that. He said, hey, you know what? Sign this deal. It's fine. If uh, people like us get into power, we can just uh, pull out of the Iran deal. And hey, guess what? <laughs> That's exactly what happened. You remember Tom You're Cotton? Referring to like, the letter How that dare was, he? Who was a letter he? that was addressed to Tehran. To Tehran, right, yeah from Republican senators. Yeah. How dare we suggest that the sanctity of the Iran deal could be violated in this fact, negotiating from the Senate to the... And of course, you create a treaty that's not a treaty, uh, that is controversial, uh, that, that, uh, that actually did not have majority support, quite the opposite. And pulling out of the deal was nothing. There were no political consequences for pulling out of the deal whatsoever, which of course also raises the interesting question of what political benefit is it to go back in? I mean, I I don't think that you would have the same kind of 60-40 against numbers now. Maybe you would, who knows? It it seems to be much less central to the national conversation. But what political benefit are you getting except to satisfy your own well, you, know, you do because the timing is savvy if you're a Biden administration official who wants to to revive the Iran deal, right? Right now, if Americans care about foreign policy at all, it's probably China that has their focus for obvious reasons. So if you actually want to kind of get something in under the radar the way that the uh, Obama administration was successful in doing, you do it now when when people are focused on the on obviously on the pandemic, on on you know, kind of get trying to get back to normal and on China if they're focused on a foreign country at all. So I I actually think from a kind of cynical political perspective, now is the time to kind of rush something through and get it get it done. You know, the more I think about this question of Americans not caring about foreign policy at the moment, um, it strikes me it's, it's potentially quite depressing because I think part of it stems from 
the fact that when you think about U.S. foreign policy, you have to orient yourself. You have to you have to sort of think about America's place in the world, um, and you're you're dealing with an agreed upon sense of um, w- what America's role in the world is, and an agreed upon sort of uh, sense of the country's good, right? Because you are protecting the country, um, and I think with. Uh, our sort of uh, patriotism so scrambled up and um, sort of like, you know, misused and challenged uh, and and so little agreed upon uh, these days. I think that has something to do with thinking about foreign policy. I think that's absolutely true. And you have you have uh, you have uh, Democrats, uh, liberals, liberal, the liberal intelligentsia turning on the American experiment uh, in the form of this notion that this country is a, is a haven of systemic racism and, and, and founded in sort of original evil and all that. And then you have the Trump wing of the, of the uh, saying that um, we have an illegitimate president who stole the election and everything is, you know, everything has gone to hell. So, uh, this middle ground, which is uh, what we really need is somebody who is there to defend, protect, and advance uh, American interests and the interests of freedom and the interests of the West and all of that. Who gives voice to that? Where, where, where is the advocacy for this position? This is why there's this kind of bizarre echo of the 70s here, uh, even though, you know, obviously we were only in, in the 70s, uh, the kind of... Um, uh, left-wing hatred uh, of America was a relatively recent vintage and, you know, uh, struck new by civil rights issues in Vietnam and and the youth movement and all of that. And then you still had this kind of atavism of, you know, everybody had a relative who, who served in World War II and had been part of this, you know, effort to, uh, to protect the world from from this terrible evil and you didn't go around trashing the United States so, so readily. Um, but now we have two parties that very easily in different ways trash the United States. So this notion that we have to do what we have to do for our sake, because we're good and they're bad. And then we have these other, we have these rivals and they're bad. They're morally bad. We're morally good. They're morally I mean, bad. Nobody that, yeah. that really puts it into perspective. When you go back to the <clears throat> Reagan era, um, the, the left always sort of viewed that, that patriotism on display in, in, in Ronald Reagan, which he encouraged and was on display in the 1980s is sort of a shallow expression of, uh, of faith and, and thanks for what America and gratitude for what America has done for the world and for its citizens. Um, but if you, I mean, look around now, this is what shallow patriotism is. That's sort of, um, what was on display in the 1980s, that sort of, um, unconditional patriotism, isn't shallow at all. It's quite deep. Um, what we see today is very conditional patriotism, that this country is only valuable insofar as it advances my interests, whatever they happen to be. Yeah, or as long as your team is winning. Yeah. I mean, like that's, that. if you, you know, that's shallow patriotism. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to follow, if you want to follow a sports analogy, right? So you have a team, your team loses. Maybe it even loses because there's bad officiating. And they lose the Super Bowl or, you know, there's a bad call by an umpire and you lose, you know, the World Series. 
You don't then say that the NFL is irredeemably corrupt and needs to be destroyed. You know, you don't say that Major League Baseball itself is a is a you know is an enterprise founded in evil. You know, uh, and so uh, that's that's the I think part of the weirdness that we're facing. And you know, to talk about sort of these enduring questions. I want to talk to you about um, a new uh, sponsor today you're going to be hearing about from me over the course of the next month. Uh, It's the new book by Mark Gerson. It's called The Telling, How Judaism's Essential Book Reveals the Meaning of Life. And what Mark has done here, Mark is uh, somebody who wrote for commentary in the 1990s, published uh, books about uh, education, having been a teacher in in New Jersey, uh, and then uh, founded a very successful uh, uh, business consulting firm. Um, and he, uh, with uh, great interest in Jewish issues, partially the result of his uh, having uh, married a, a rabbi and uh, having four kids with her, has taken on the task of uh, analyzing, describing, giving the historical context to and the uh, and the flavor of uh, the Passover holiday and the Haggadah, the the text that uh, Jews read um, uh, at at Passover, um, making it actually probably the best known Jewish text, even better known than the than the weekly prayer book or or the Torah or certainly the Talmud, because this is something that that most particularly American Jews read. Uh, twice a year every year for the course of their their entire lives and so this is a very exciting project um Haggadah means telling and the 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 principle of the Haggadah is that you tell your children the story of the exodus from Egypt and the more and deeper and more uh seriously you tell it the more praiseworthy you are that is what it says uh, in the Haggadah, which is a compendium, it's a it's a it's a uh, bits and pieces kind of put together account uh, in in various different ways with kind of fifteen sections where you talk about practice, observance, the history of 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 the people, the war against idolatry, the journey from Egypt, um, and the and the role of education in Jewish life. Uh, which is central to the mission of the Haggadah. It's a thrilling book. Uh, there is, it's very rich. There's a lot to it. I'll be talking about it, as I say, over the course of the next month. The Telling by Mark Gerson. Uh, please go to Amazon, go to your bookstore, go to Barnes & Noble, whatever you have to do. Mark uh, Gerson's The Telling. Okay, so uh, we are now... I guess days or a week or whatever away from some kind of final vote on the coronavirus relief package uh, in the Senate with the final uh, with the determination, very complicated thing, passing it with fifty one votes, which would mean fifty Senate, fifty Democratic senators and Kamala Harris breaking the tie with fifty Republican senators voting against. Uh, was waiting on the ruling of the Senate parliamentarian. Uh, this bill only evades being a bill that requires a sixty-vote margin, uh, filibuster-proof margin, because it is a because it, it, it's been deemed a budget bill, uh, something that involves and controls and has some major standing on the federal budget. 
and uh, the Senate parliamentarian th- therefore had to rule on certain parts of the package, and particularly the imposition uh, of a, a federal minimum wage. And the parliamentarian ruled yesterday that the federal minimum wage is not a budget bill for very simple reasons, which are that they it does not implicate the federal budget, except to the extent that federal workers would be have their minimum wage increase. That is not that's not what it's about. Well, that it would the 1.4 million jobs <clears throat> that it would cost oh. would would have an impact on payroll taxes. But that's an incidental effect, not a direct budgetary effect, and cannot be ruled. It doesn't comport with the bird process, which means the bird uh, rule, which means it would have to affect the budget for only ten years. Right. So the Senate parliamentarian has ruled this way. The Senate parliamentarian has now, in our view, I mean, here's the interesting thing, which is minimum wage asked in isolation, asked about in isolation, polls very well, always has, always will. You know, it sounds like why not? Why shouldn't everybody earn a minimum of fifteen dollars an hour? Um, peel the onion a little bit, and you start getting to business owners saying this is catastrophic for me. Uh, you know, if I'm not living in a place where there is extremely high, you know, I mean, I I can't afford fifteen dollars an hour, so I could have I could have six workers, and now I'm going to have three. And those three are also, you know, uh, not commensurate with the kind of money that I'm going to pay. But fine, you know, that's that that's whatever. So, um, and you deal with them. You deal with the macroeconomic impact, which is this claim that on the one hand, <clears throat> it'll 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 give uh, a lot of people a lot more money, and then it will cost a number, a commensurate number of people uh, jobs. So, whatever benefit, larger financial benefit is either zeroed out or in the end is actually negative for the economy, certainly in the nature of employment. Um, And I don't really think that outside of the uh, religious belief in the minimum wage on the part of Democrats, that if you're the Biden administration, you want this to be the thing that you, you know, let bring down your ship. Like, this is not worth it. Uh, and it's not really good policy. I don't care what any, you know, there is no, except in this modern place we're in with new economic thinking that says things like, you know, $20 trillion in debt is great. (laughs) You know, uh, the minimum wage is bad economic policy, just flat out. It's bad. It has bad consequences. We have a, a century's worth of evidence for this in terms of initial employment, teenage employment, all kinds of different factors here, how people get into the workplace, how they learn, how they, how they move up, how they don't necessarily, how they, how they, uh, how it uh, retards ambition, various other things. Okay. If you're Biden, are you happy that the parliamentarian has ruled this way. No, yes, this is perfect for Biden because this is a this was a test by progressives of Biden because we've already passed two bipartisan relief bills, right? So this is another th- this was not a relief bill. This was a, a relief bill with victorious Democrats having tacked on all their favorite, you know, uh policies which they then want to ram down the throat of Congress and the American people and 
the Biden administration has actually been signaling not so subtly over the last few weeks that, oh, you know, maybe we should take the minimum wage out of this. This isn't quite, we really got to focus on the relief. So for, for Biden, this is perfect because the parliamentarian is the one who gets thrown under the bus here. And we see this because the, the squad in the House, you know, Elon Omar, Cory Bush, um, and the like, they're all tweeting angrily about how the par- parliamentarian should be fired. How dare this, you know, unelected bureaucrat stop us from giving Americans what they need, which is a, you know, federal minimum wage. So they're angry at the parliamentarian. And despite their claims of wanting, you know, being the party of governance, want to blow it all up on, on the Senate side, Biden can sit there and say, well, you know, let's just work towards, you know, separating the minimum wage question from the relief bill. So he's got cover. Um, so in that sense, I think he's in it's a politically good position for him for now, because they can still go out and talk about the relief bill. And interestingly, it's protective of, of Republicans in some sense, because they can't be blamed for getting rid of the minimum wage themselves. So in 20, the, you know, when when the midterm elections come up, you can't have all the squaddies and, and all the people on the left saying the only reason you don't have a good paycheck right now is because of Republicans, because it technically isn't. It's because the parliamentarian ruled this way. And some Republican senators, Hawley and whatnot, have been proposing somewhat lower minimum wage hikes. So in a weird way, both sides get a little something. The squad is really angry about it, though. There, um, the the general consensus, the conventional wisdom now is, oh, this is great though because actually it's going to make it much easier to pass the the COVID bill, and we get to talk about what's in the COVID bill. Um, there's there's a lot of pitfalls for Democrats when we start to begin to talk about what's in the COVID bill. One. A problem. So a political scandal is really dangerous when you can boil it down to a sentence, right? That's that's something that is easily con- com- communicable, communicable rather, whatever, and uh, it's harder to defend. One of the things that has could have a long tail on it is this provision in the bill, which sets aside five hundred seventy, I think, billion, a million, five hundred seventy million for federal employees who qualify if they're parents of children whose school school is closed or hybridized. They, you, citizen, qualified for $1,400 in relief, right? A month, you get $1,400 a month if you're an average American, right? Right, so for full-time federal employees, they're able to claim $1,400 a week Mm -hmm. through September 30th, insofar as their school is closed. If your kid's going to school, if it goes to a private institution, you don't get it. Why are schools closed? Because federal employees, well, not federal employees, but teachers unions who are uh, in line with Democratic priorities are keeping them closed. And in what so district? So now you have this, you have this self-perpetuating loop. It's even worse, which- though, because, can I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but Fairfax County, Virginia, Montgomery County, Maryland, the places that have not, and D.C., the places that have a vast majority of the federal government's workforce living in these suburban areas right. Also have not had school for a year. It's not a coincidence. I sound a right. little bit conspiracy theorizing, but sorry. I don't think, no, this, this, this has a lot. This could have a real long tail on it. I, I'm about as anti-populist as it gets. This is pitchfork stuff. Okay. It has a long tail in two ways. That's what's central about this, if you think about it, which is that by, by doing this, federal workforce is, of course, overwhelmingly Democratic in its, in its, in its, in its voting. Um, and you have, uh, as you say, teachers unions in Montgomery, uh, Loudoun, Prince William, uh, uh, and Fairfax, and I, I th- Arlington counties, the central, the, the the ring counties, Prince George's County, the ring counties around around Washington. Um, uh, you are creating a you are creating a conspiracy of support for school closure. 
uh, it's not just that you are uh, doing the, you know, working the benefit of the teachers unions locally and in these areas uh, with, uh, you are, you, you are creating a constituency within these schools that benefits from them staying closed, that is rewarded financially to the tune of fifty six hundred dollars a month yeah, a lot per of money. family to stay closed that's not a conspiracy that is how that is like a urban that is like classic ward urban corruption on a federal scale and and you know um we've talked about or maybe we haven't much talked about how the United States turned against the labor unions in the 1960s and 1970s, which were viewed, which were in very high odor and, I don't know, a quarter of the workforce in the United States or something was unionized. Uh, there was a lot of public support and uh, it was thought that they were, you know, they, they helped raise people from the working class, the middle class, cr- protected them from workplace injury created health benefits and educational benefits and they were wonderful the UAW and this and the coal miners and uh, and uh, the AFL-CIO and these were all great organizations and then from within them and around them came the news that they were astonishingly corrupt that their leaderships which did not work on the union floor or the factory floor were bribing, getting bribes, living incredibly high on the hog, working with the mafia, part of the mafia, um, and all, and and so it wasn't, you know, there, there's a whole conspiracy that this was all done by, you know, management in order to kill unions to come up with these uh, theories. But it, it's not true. The Teamsters, which was the largest union in the United States, was a mafia-dominated organization. Federal government took over the management and administration of the teachers union uh, of of the teamsters, um, and the public thought, well, these are corrupt, and people inside the unions themselves were outraged and horrified by the behavior of their leaders, and that is how the trade union movement fell to pieces. This has very much the same odor to it. I just to give a perspective too, it's. If, if this go if this gets passed and goes into effect in March and it's good through September, that's thirty nine thousand dollars in the pockets of federal workers whose kids don't go to school. Thirty nine thousand dollars if you do it from March to the end of September. That is a lot. That is higher, I believe, than the average annual income of most Americans. That is a, a, appalling. It's appalling. Yeah, and it's a bribe. And I it's mean, a bribe it's to people bribe who actually are making a good support, salary yeah. to buy their support for teachers unions. In places where that that can really be, you know, affected, um, and it's kind of astonishing because I don't know how you don't think that this was done cynically. Explain to me how whoever put it in there, and we, you know, this is one of the things about these mammoth bills. You have these things in the bill, and you don't know who put them there. It's the classic story of these riders and little bits and pieces of things and all of that. Uh, you don't know how they got in there. So we don't know who put it in there. But if you think whoever came up with the idea and put it in, what was their what was their motivation? To privilege federal workers over everyone else about how on earth they were going to deal with school closures? Liberal leftist Democrats, this is how they think? 
Well, and think I about this. Think this like, is how they think. If you're if you're a working class uh, person who lives in these, you know, who, who lives among a lot of federal workers, but you're not yourself a federal worker, and your kid also goes to public school that's closed, but you have a job that forces you out of the home, like you drive a you drive an Uber or you are a grocery store worker or you work in in, in a restaurant. How are you going to feel? I mean, I you probably all vote Democrat, but if you're looking next door at your neighbor who's literally sitting on, you know, $5,600 a month while their kids are, you know, hanging out at home and you have to go to work every day and struggle to make ends meet, this is, a this is you know, the, the class discussion that we often hear from Democrats, which is meant to attack Republicans, they're going to have a big internal debate about that, I hope, because that should make you angry if you're not a federal worker. See, this, I think, is where the nightmare of our negative partisanship comes into play in a way that was not true in previous generations, which is the, the, the default mechanism at this moment when you are talking about controversial policies entered into by your side that may be politically unpopular or uncomfortable is... You can't object to it. You can't oppose it because you are going to give aid and succor to the enemy. And you've got to stick with us. Right or wrong, win or lose, you know, you've got to stick with us because what happens then is the fascists come barreling down. And that means this uh, Noah's anti-populism, you know, notwithstanding, uh, the question is how that information gets out to people and how it's used effectively by uh, people who are in opposition to it to really, you know, score points and really, you know, make a make a, a serious bring about a serious reckoning here. There's been um, <clears throat> a bizarre dynamic in this early administration, in which um, Ron Claim doesn't really seem to understand staff. Yeah, and that's the problem. He's he thinks he's more chief than staff, um, and behaves that way. I mean, I forget whose admonition that was. It's a famous one. James um, Baker, Baker said, "The chief of staff is still staff." Yeah, and he he doesn't seem to get it. And um, his his big line, he's out there very public facing, uh, White House chief of staff, and his uh, big line is, you know, this is bipartisan. And the people in the press have been marveling over this line. It's so clever because they're redefining bipartisan, not as votes in the Senate, but as public opinion polling. If a significant amount of the opposition favors it, it's it's bipartisan. Magic, rhetorical magic. Um, It's so shallow. All it is is a threat. It's not analysis. It's trying to get you to shut up about it. And this provision, and there will be many more in this bill, are really easy to argue against, not hard to argue against. And the notion here that no one's going to look under the hood of this thing, either before it's passed or after, is is just hubris. It's 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 laughable, especially when you just when you can boil it down to a sentence that is we're bribing federal employees and creating inducements to keep schools closed. Someone's going to have to figure out how to argue against that. And just saying this is really really popular isn't going to hold forever because it's just, it's, 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 it's just a reflection of this 
snapshot in time. It also undermines their safety argument that is that that has been the one that the unions have been clinging to as as the justification for keeping schools closed past the point at which scientific evidence shows that's that's not needed. This undermines that because if it's only unsafe for federal employees, children, what about everybody else's kids? Right. Like so you're going to keep it closed, but only pay off the people who, you know, are Democratic, solid Democratic voters. I mean, this is just it's it it just gives the lie to, to a lot of the political rhetoric and cover they've been giving the unions. Look, the, the, the naked political fact is that the success or failure of the stimulus here, the $2 trillion stimulus, we've already heard the warnings that the stimulus is going to overheat the economy, create inflation, and is going to do more harm than good. That's the Larry Summers argument. That argument is lost uh, I mean, it's lost as a, as, you know, as a, as a means of combating the bill's passage, right? So that's that no, no one apparently bought that. So fine. Um, what's interesting is that uh, the, the value, the political value of the stimulus in terms of buying off uh, elements of the Democratic base will be there, but that the true political success or failure of the stimulus has will will lie entirely on how well or how explosive the economy is in the wake of the pandemic you know if there is massive economic growth in the wake of the pandemic when things get back to normal whatever that means and whatever that is uh the claim will be that the stimulus contributed to that and was a wild success. And I'm afraid to say it is going to be difficult to argue against that opinion because there's no way to run the formula, you know, there's no way to run the counter uh, the counter scenario. Pandemic will end, something will happen, the economy will grow, may you know, if it grows, you know, by 8 or 9% in two successive quarters, then Biden and the Democrats will be golden. There's going to be no way for Republicans to make the argument that they were reckless and irresponsible with all this spending because you're going to say, well, shut up, look at the results. If, however, things go not so great and there is some inflation and the stimulus is seen to not have been particularly effective, then they're going to reap the whirlwind. But I, we don't know, you know, they're either, you know, either they're doing this because they are so ideologically committed to all of these action items uh, as a form of pent up rage, anger, suppressed feeling during the Trump administration and the, and the, the five years or six years of uh, Republicans on the Hill retarding Obama's ambitions uh, after the 2010 election. So it's been like 10 years and they have all this stuff they want to do and they're going to do it right now with a $2 trillion spending bill that nominally is about the virus but is actually just about turning the spigots of federal spending up and then also creating the conditions and pressures for a massive tax increase. I think it's worse than that, that um, every every house financial analyst that you look at predicts a real profound jump in GDP this year, anywhere from four to eight points. Um, it, but it's stuff like this that could overshadow the economic message because it does. it's divorced from economic performance. People won't look at this bill and say, oh, it's responsible for all this. I mean, many will. 
Um, and many will be inclined to reward Democrats just because they're presiding over this economic expansion. But this talking point exists outside of that narrative. That's a good, that's a really important point because I think of it this way. If all politics is local, envy is, is like fear, a very powerful motivating force for human beings. And if you're sitting in your suburban house watching your federal, uh, federally employed neighbor rake it in and your kids still can't go to school and their kids are also not in school, but they're getting paid to, to sit at home with their kids. That kind of animosity is, is kind of uh, from a partisan perspective should and can be exploited rather easily. Okay. But then let's talk about how that message will get transmitted. And that has to do with some of the stuff that's going on in Orlando this weekend at the conservative political action conference, which is that uh, there will be a media conspiracy to quiet and downplay the re- downplay all of this, as there is right now. Like, uh, talk about a rich story. We all know this because we're on the right. I don't know what I don't. I don't think a single liberal in America knows that federal workers are going to get this. You know, are, get, are getting this. You know, this. Uh, you know, these special Easter. It's a bribe. You should just call it what bribe. it is. It is a bribe. Um. <laughs> But that could be a lead story in the New York Times, like just the way that stories about how there are benefits for fat cat corporations and tax bills, it's, it's, it's no different, but they're not telling the story. So the story will be told in conservative media. But if 50% of the, of the, of the stories and pressure in the conservative media are going to be about how the, you know, fr- from now until 2024 are going to be how the election was stolen and here comes Trump and he's trying to kill McConnell and he, they're, they're going to primary this guy and here comes Lara Trump and there's Ivanka Trump and there's Donald Trump Jr. Maybe Trump won't run. So Donald Jr. will run. Mark Meadows says everybody that you can look at who might be president of the United States of 2025 has the last name Trump, which is a way of saying that maybe it'll be Donald, maybe it'll be Donald Jr. Maybe it'll be Ivanka. Maybe it'll be Eric. Maybe it'll be Barron. So I read that, I read that differently though, because he said everybody who's, who's we're looking at the next administration at the start of planning for the next administration and i can tell you the people that are at the top of the list all of them are named trump that's you say that's candidates i thought it was staff okay who knows whatever it doesn't that it's donald trump and then it's just trump's all the way down my point is that then this all gets mixed up with the question of trump and trump's future and trumpism and that message will simply be become subsumed into just pure negative partisanship rather than being this commonsensical, what the hell is going on? This isn't right. The sort of thing that needs to get out to low information voters, independent voters who are not particularly ideologically tied to either party, who are the ones who are, as always, even as they shrink in number, uh, you know, in, in, in pure terms, though not in, in larger polling terms, uh, or, you know, self-identifying terms are the ones who are going to decide who is president and not president next time. Well, this is where the vacuum in Republican leadership becomes once again, both noticeable and horrifying, because if you cannot have leaders who step up and, and start talking about that message and and ignore the Trump you know, uh, Trumpapalooza for the next, for, for the foreseeable future, then this stuff will get passed. And actually the Republicans and conservatives in general get everything they deserve because there is a major leadership vacuum and it's very tough right now to step into it because you're going to get hit by both sides. But there are, there are, I hope, you know, people in the Republican party who could deliver that message and actually without even engaging Trump personally or the Trump family personally. It's just, here's where we are. This guy's president. The Democrats control everything. They're going to drive this country into the ground if we don't do something. Here's what we can do. It doesn't have to be about Trump, but I think there's still a lot of fear and realigning going on right now. And 
the time for leadership is running. Like we need that to start now. It should have started a month ago, but there there's a vacuum and, and this is what happens in a vacuum. Well, if you remember 2009, I just want to sort of give you a, a, a moment of good cheer. If you remember 2009, the Republicans were reeling. They were on the ropes. They didn't know what to do. They had 40, they had 39 senators. Mitch McConnell came up with the strategy, the powerlessness strategy, which has now been transmuted into how Mitch McConnell destroyed Obamacare, which is insane, which was, we're just not going to vote for anything. We Republicans are not going to, are not going to participate in Obama's successful legislative agenda. First of all, he doesn't need us. He can pass whatever he wants to pass, but we are not going to give him bipartisan cover. He's going to own it and we'll see what happens. Turns out it was a brilliant strategy because he owned it and then they got shellacked in 2010. Um, There was no leadership though. And out of nowhere, Dick Cheney gets up and starts delivering speeches and I, you know, it was a it was a rare thing. Vice President of the United States, not particularly popular as far as we knew, but it, he gave these galvanizing series of speeches about what Obama was doing, where he was going economically, and where he was going in terms of foreign policy, that provided a weird kind of heart uh, to the the effort, or gave people uh, some sense that there was still fight after all of this was over. Uh, the problem is that all of that out of power stuff has this focus on on, on Trump and, and Trump alone. And Trump has no interest in making a policy set of policy arguments against Bidenism. He wants to discipline the Republican Party to get it, remain, keep it as a vassal state. That is the source of his energy and authority and power and his own passion. Uh, he'll talk crap about Biden whenever he has to and whatever way he needs to, but that's not where his focus is. And so the question is, is there someone who can take up that role? I don't know who that is. I don't know how it happens. Uh, it's not McConnell. It ain't Kevin McCarthy. Uh, and it's not anybody who wants to involve himself in the Trump wars or the not Trump wars. But I don't know the Donald Trump has the the belief here is that the president has been invisible, really. Um, but he hasn't really. And he's been doing media and he's been putting out press statements. A favorite thing that he did that I thought was really indicative of how this is going to go is the the minute that Andrew Cuomo found himself in the hot seat and people in, on his camp began turning on him. Donald Trump came out and defended him. He went out to bat. For Andrew Cuomo and his performance during the pandemic, I, that tells you everything you need to to understand about what this guy's motivations are. He felt I sorry mean, a cult for is him. a cult is a cult, right? No, he felt sorry for him because Cuomo was guy. Cuomo was going through exactly what he went through. It's not fair. By the way, the Cuomo story is another one that you know should have gotten out to uh, the the wider. Uh, you know, population of news consumers, you know, conservatives knew it for months and months and months about the nursing homes. And it was like, oh, that's just that's just something they hear in their crazy right wing news media, you know. <laughs> well, and that and then, of course, as as Christine said the other day, this, uh, you know, the details of this uh, Lindsay Boylan sexual harassment scandal in which Lindsay Boylan says that Cuomo summoned her to his office and then kissed her on the lips, a married woman with a small child 
who had apparently made it evidently clear to him and everybody who knew it, that she that she was uncomfortable that he was in pursuit of her. And uh, where is that? Why, you know, I mean, we uh, we hear about how we heard about how Louis C.K. didn't touch anybody, uh, didn't kiss anybody, but had them in a in a in a room and his career is over. And and now there's Cuomo, who actually physically molested someone, a staffer in his government. And uh, and why isn't that on the front pages? Well, and even when it is when it is discussed, the framing of it is so telling, right? So CNN, when when allegations were made against uh, Brett Kavanaugh, it's like these women are accusing him of all these terrible things. But when allegations are made against a, a prominent Democrat, it's Cuomo denies all allegations against him. You know, even so, you might not think there's a big difference there, but that's a huge qualitative difference in how you're presenting the framing of a story. And you, we certainly saw that throughout the Trump years, but we're going to continue to see that in terms of politically how they're going to frame this COVID relief bill, right? Like the, the bad news is either going to get buried or reframed as Republicans pounce on this, you know, this provision. And so, but the framing is important. And I do think that more and more Americans are becoming, although deeply cynical and mistrustful of the media as an institution, there's a benefit to that if they can see when that's happening, because that's an attempt to frame an argument to manipulate your opinion about the news that you're receiving. And it should be, you know, challenged. I just say one thing, and that is that I, I just don't, I, it has become increasingly difficult to understand what it is that ordinary people know and don't know uh, because there is no common frame of reference. Uh, conservatives know certain things. Liberals know certain things. I don't know what people in the middle know. I don't know what people who don't hew very closely to one ideological side or the other know, what it is that comes across to them, wh- what the emphasis is this is one of the reasons that it's so hard for us to understand what the public attitude is on the virus because I just don't think we 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 know what the more engaged people know and throughout the course of history what the more engaged people know was actually the only thing that mattered uh, because they controlled all conversation they were the people who had the ideas they were the ones who you know nominated people did all that uh, and and so that's history shows us that's who mattered and that's who mattered at the time that is less and less true as there is no common frame of news reference or ideological reference or anything like that and i just don't i don't know what they know i don't know do they know about andrew cuomo in the nursing homes or do they not do they know about are they going to know about the fourteen hundred dollars a week for federal workers or are they not and, I don't, and we don't know what degree of skepticism they they you know apply to any of this stuff and and where you know right particularly as they're not heated uh, uh, I'm not saying that they're credulous or not credulous because I I don't really understand them and who they are really but as they're not heated they don't necessarily have any reason to be skeptical of a piece of information that comes down their path. When they hear it, it's like, oh, did you see that story about yada, you know, it's like, how do they, you know, we essentially, oh, was it the New York Times? Well, I don't know. We better figure out whether that's, that doesn't sound quite right to me, right? But if they don't have those signposts that say, I trust this or I don't trust that, what is it that they take in and what is it that they, what is it that they are skeptical about? It's, it's just, it's an interesting 
problem, and it's not... It's much less solvable than it, it, it used to be. And with that, we will wish you a very good weekend. Remember, go to merch.commentarymagazine.com for that Crushing Morosity t-shirt and sweatshirt, for the Keep the Candle Burning t-shirt, for the Commentary Magazine logo t-shirt, and for the Commentary tote bag. Maybe more to come. So for Abe, Christina, Noah, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.